Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 13th episode of Sustainable Futures, Designing Green Communities and Buildings, a Living Architecture Monitor podcast from Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. My name is Stephen Peck, and I am your host today, as well as the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities, the industry association that promotes green roofs and walls across North America and around the world. I'm also the co-founder of the World Green Infrastructure Network, an international association that's working to support the global development of the green roof and wall industry. Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with one of the foremost world experts on the subject of ecological design, architect and pioneer Ken Yang. Ken is both an architect and an ecologist, and he's driven by a pioneering spirit with a long history in sustainable design. This endeavor began with his research at Cambridge University in 1971. For over 40 years through his commitment, he has developed principles and systems in architecture that contribute to advancing sustainable ecological architecture. This is evident in his built work and his writings. His mission to save the planet by design, to reverse climate breakdown, to affect positive environmental impacts and achieve a net zero energy and carbon neutral future. These ideas are presented in more than 12 of his instructive books. His architecture is characterized by verdant biotic constituents, greenery, that create habitats to enhance local biodiversity to become human-made ecosystems. Several of his exemplary projects include the Boosted Tower in 1985, DG Data Center 2002, Solaris Building 2011, Swasana Putrajaya in 2017, and many others. He trained at the Architecture Association in London, his doctorates from Cambridge University, and it was published as Designing with Nature by McGraw-Hill in 1985. He remains an honorary fellow of the Wolfson College at Cambridge. His awards for innovation in architecture include the Aga Khan Award, the Prince Claus Award, the UIA August Parrot Award, Architectural Society of China's Lian Cheng Award, in Malaysia. In recognition of his dedicated years of work on nature-based architecture, The Guardian names him as one of 50 people who could save the planet. We're delighted to have Ken Yang as our keynote speaker in 2008 when he joined us in New York. And so I'm very pleased to have Ken back now on the show to share his thoughts on the subject of architectural design and his critical role in helping us to address questions of biodiversity and the climate change emergency. Ken, thanks a lot for being on the show and congratulations on the Solaris project building in Singapore. It's beautiful. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's lovely to be here. Uh, And thank you for the introduction. My mother couldn't have said it better. (laughs) She would have maybe put a couple more expletives in there. Um, (laughs) Hey, you know, (laughs) now most people are aware... (laughs) Now, most people are aware, right, that our current development path is leading us to a very inhospitable future. You've been aware of this for a long time. Uh, The design and construction of buildings, of course, is part of the problem, but it's also part of the solution. So in terms of the big picture, what what are the biggest challenges to making design more sustainable from your perspective? What are the big challenges we have to overcome? Well, studies show that buildings contribute to 80% of climate change in its construction, its operation, in the functions that take place within. But um, we are designing the wrong things. 
we're building the wrong things. We're operating the wrong things. So we, architects, engineers, and town planners and technologists have to rethink what we do. We can't do things the same way anymore. And that is the biggest challenge, um, changing the mindset of people to, um, to think about what we do on the planet because ultimately the ecology of the planet is the originating baseline, the context where everything that we do as human beings take place. And so the health of the planet's ecology uh, is extremely important, and that's the crux of what I do, that I try to design, um, some people call it nature-based architecture, I call it ecology-based architecture. And I wish more people would do that. But getting people to do that is, is, is a real challenge. Um, my generation of people, of architects, are really just about, it's a terrible thing to say, to give up hope on them because very few of them have been brought up with, uh, with a background in environmental biology or ecology. And uh, my hope is with the next generation. But at the same time, how many schools of architecture teach ecology? Maybe it could be more than a handful. And so this is the great change that has to take place. It's beyond me to effect this change. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm just a draftsman. And so I'm not sure what to do. It has to, it has to be the influences, the, the mind, you know, the uh, habit changes that has to do the work and change the mindset of all those people whose daily lives impinge on the natural environment. And um, so my hope is somebody will do that. We as architects cannot change people unless we're activists, and I'm not an activist, but the only way we can effect change is by example. So what we do, and we hope that by example, um, others see the benefits and the significance of what we're doing and do the same thing and make use of what we, what we do. Somebody asked me the other day, um, which is your best building? And I said, I'm not sure because uh, all our projects, all our buildings, experiments, experiment to see how we can advance, push an idea or a concept or a device or a system further. And so that's what they are. All my projects are experiments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Successful, some not so successful, and some are dreadful failures, but that's, you know, we keep plugging, you know, the uh, the pursuit of a green architecture. Well, you've certainly contributed significantly to that. And it sounds to me like from your comments, Ken, that the, the question isn't so much that we don't know how to do this, that the information isn't available. 
but maybe that there's just so much impetus in the current way of doing things that um that that may be one of the barriers you know it's like a it's like a tank or an oil tanker it takes you know half an hour to turn an oil tanker around or a large ship on the water is, is do you think that's really the the issue there's just so much um you know we're so built into doing things a certain way in terms of engineering and architectural design and planning and development well no i i think small people don't know what to do and uh and i i suppose is in many ways i think ecological design is still in its infancy and there are a lot more things to be done you know i have a whole agenda of things that i want to do before i start as the English say, pushing daisies, um, you know, when you're in the ground. So I, um, I don't think I'll complete the agenda before it's all over. So, mm -hmm. but I don't have enough help. I can only do so much. Here we are in the city in the Far East, and and uh, I wish there were more ecological designers in the world. Well, we'll just have to keep uh, keep working on that and get as get as much done as uh, as I think we can. Um, you know, some people have argued that some ecologists, anyways, like Bill Reese, among others, have said, "Look, we got to stop building buildings. They they have, they take so much out of the ecosystems that we depend on for our existence. Um, we got to stop it. We got to stop doing it. We we should be repurposing existing buildings." But it seems like inevitable, like you look at the numbers and it seems that we're just on a major construction binge around the world. And you've been trying to make that sustainable. What's the fundamental difference, would you say, or what are the fundamental differences between the traditional way of things? I mean, if you were to encapsulate it, what would be the differences between your ecolog sustainable ecological approach to architecture and what we see as traditional architectural uh, practices. If you had to sum it up, what would you say the, the major differences are? Well, uh, my approach is based on the idea of ecomimicry or biomimicry. And I wrote a paper on this back in 1969, which was published in a magazine called Architectural Design. The idea was that um, we have to design buildings like biological systems. And we should design buildings that replicate, emulate, and augment um, the attributes of the ecosystem. You know, Stephen, look at the room that you're in. Everything in it is inorganic and abiotic. That means it is non-biological. The only body constituents are you and and the bugs in your room, and so we. The first thing we need to do is to rectify this. We should include more body constituents into our built structures, like what you do. The green roofs is a step forward, and green walls, you know, are, are things we can do to um, add more. Biotic constituents, vegetation, and landscaping into the existing built environment. But that's hardly enough, I think. 
And so we need to do a lot more. But the other thing is that we cannot approach green design incrementally. So if you even if you suffer a whole city with more and more green roofs and more and more green buildings and more and more green walls, green atriums, the city will never be green because you have to start at the level of the infrastructure. Now, if a city's infrastructure is not green, no matter how many green buildings we put into it, the city will never be green. And so if you want to make the, the, the cities green, you want to make buildings green, then you have to start with the infrastructure and you have to look into the biological structure of your built system. So in a, in a nutshell, that's that's what we should be doing. And by green infrastructure, you mean what exactly? What what does green infrastructure mean to you? Well, the five four or five things which are infrastructural uh, components in a city. The first is the energy system. If the energy system of your city or the energy infrastructure is not green. Um, you are not doing anything, it's all superficial. Then a second is the water system, the water infrastructure. The water has to come from renewable sources and, and when you use the water, you have to close the loop because the cycle, you have to reuse and recycle. Or if, or otherwise the, the rainfall that, that falls on the ground at the moment goes onto an impervious surface. Which, which then goes to a drain, which drains into a river, and it's gone forever. But in nature, the water that falls on the ground goes back into the ground. It, re it recharges the groundwater. And so that's the second infrastructure. The third is the sewage system. That's another infrastructure. You know, the sewage is essentially what um, scientists call black water. Mm. And, you know, the sewage, you know, that we... We discharge goes into the sewer system and goes into some treatment plant somewhere, and a surplus of that gets discharged into some waterway or water body, and so that's not green. We should, you know, treat black water in a natural way. Um, for example, by using constructed wetland, and so and then there is the uh, the water system, the energy system, the sewage system. And that's mobility, the transportation system. That is also part of the infrastructure. So these are aspects of the infrastructure that we should make green in the first place. If these are not green, everything else that we do, the more green buildings we put in the city, will never make the city green. And so we have to start with infrastructure. You mentioned uh, food production as well in, in part of your writings about this. How does How does the food system factor into helping us become more sustainable? Well, we have to grow food naturally and without using artificial fertilizers. Now, that's a real challenge. Mm. So, uh, and it's not impossible. So, the, 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 we have to grow food in a natural way. And I think it sounds dreadful. The other day I was talking to somebody in Japan and he said to me, you know, we, as for our diet, we have to change our diet. We have to stop eating meat mm. because um, 
cattle, especially beef, because he thinks that eating beef contributes a significant amount of a significant amount to climate change. Mm -hmm. um, because you know, to 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 make beef, you have to feed the cattle from grain, which you have to clear the land to grow, and then you need to have to clear the land to have cattle farms. Mm -hmm. Then when you slaughter the beef, you have gases emitted which pollute the environment. And so all in all, we have to, you know, stop eating beef for our protein. We have to become uh, vegetarian, not eat nuts and things like that. Crickets. Yeah, something. <laughs> yes. Have you ever so, had a cricket, Ken? Uh, have you ever tasted crickets? They're pretty crunchy. Uh, Yes, very crunchy. I had it first time in Japan. Yeah. Uh, I had lunch with a Jap famous Japanese architect called Kishu Kurukawa. Kishu Kurukawa. And um, he took me to a Japanese restaurant where you your food is in a wooden box. And then I said, what's this? It's, just, it's a cricket. You should you know, bite into it. It's crunchy. It's very nice. Very tasty. <laughs> and very full of protein, too. For the protein, yes. Mm -hmm. Should we be trying to grow more food on uh, on buildings? You know, we have this nascent or early stage, you know, rooftop agricultural movement in North America. I know right. there's a lot of rooftop farming in in Asia. Right. What do you? Th what's your thoughts on that? Are, are, should we be trying to grow more food or skyscrapers that are farms? You know, some of these ideas that are uh, that have been kicking around. What's your take on? The integration of food production and buildings. Well, I think it's a, it's a wonderful idea. We should do more of it. But for skyscrapers, you hardly have any roof area to grow food, so you have to grow food on the sides of the the building. But with skyscrapers, you know, a lot depends on which latitude you're in, because you need solar. You need the sun. In the tropics, we only get the sun on the east side for a third of the day, and a third is above, and the other third is on the west side. Whereas in the northern hemisphere, which is where you are, the food is, you know, the sun is mostly from the south, so you can't grow food on the north facade. Mm -hmm. And so there's a number of things to do, you can do. And then you have the issue of shadows cast on your facade from other buildings, and so that affects the food, you know, growing. And so we have to rethink how we produce food and and how it um, how we can feed the community. But even with the uh, you know, I'm sure calculations uh, can be carried out to tell you how much surface you need, surface area you need to grow food to feed you know a, a person or. or, or Number of persons, and I doubt if you can have enough area on any on a building that will grow enough food to feed the people inside the building. And so you may have to grow the food outside the building. And that you know the whole multiple issues like clearing the land again to grow food and things like that. So things are not you know it's not as simple as as. As, you know, as, as it could be. Mm -hmm. We have to rethink how we create food. And um, the other day I was in 
house in Russia, in Moscow, uh, somebody asked me, um, when did this contamination of the environment start? It all started during the Industrial Revolution, when we started to industrialize um, production of food, production of things, production of um, artifacts. Now, if you look at the way the difference between us as a species and other species in nature, we make more things, more th artifacts, more buildings, more structures than any other species in nature. Then when we finish with the things that we don't want anymore, or leftover buildings, leftover goods, leftover food, we throw these away. Mm. But there's no way. The biosphere is a closed system. So these have to go somewhere. You either burn it and you become, you know, more pollutants into the air, or you put them in landfill, and very soon you run out of land for landfill. Um, and so we have to have less things and make less things. I mean, uh, I only have, you know, five shirts, two suits, you know, six pair of socks and six handkerchiefs. And that's all I need. I don't buy anything else. You know, oh, uh, it makes it easy to get uh, dressed in the morning too. I, I guess, huh? You know, well, not, too, not too many choices. <laughs> I tell my family and friends, looking at doing birthdays and Christmases, don't give me anything I cannot use. Yeah, explains why every Christmas and birthdays I get socks and handkerchiefs, and that's it. <laughs> it's funny, you know. There's the idea of there being no away and the bio, bio um, ology of the planet being a closed system. I think the plastic pollution crisis and the growing awareness that plastic microplastics are everywhere now uh, really drives that home. You know that point um, for people that hadn't thought of it before. Mm -hmm. That you can't, you know, every you've heard probably that you know they estimate every every week or so we probably ingest a credit card full of plastics because they're everywhere. They're in the water. They're in the food like microplastics, nanoplastics, and because they never go away, they don't uh, they don't break down. Well, we're making the wrong type of plastics, nothing or plastic, but we need to make plastics that which are, which can biodegrade um, in nature. So if the plastics we make from corn or from, uh, from vegetable, vegetation, vegetables and biodegradable plastics is the answer. But if you make you know, some plastics, it just will take years to decompose, and they contaminate waterways, and they're just you know full of. You find most beaches have full of plastic debris, which you, which is almost impossible to to clear uh, over time because you know as soon as you clear a beach, you know the next day they get filled up with plastic stuff again from the sea. So we have to, nothing wrong with plastics, suggests that we're making the wrong type of plastics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Plastics which are um, biodegradable or easily biodegradable. I mean, when you drink water from, uh, 
from one of these plastic bottles. Um, the bottle itself biodegrades over a much a reasonably short period of time. But the cap itself, you know, that, that thick plastic cap takes maybe 20, 30 plus years to biodegrade. Mm. And so we figure out a solution um, to, uh, to contain things. Um, I'm wondering, um, from uh, back to uh, architectural design uh, for a minute here, um, nature-based driven science-supported ecological principles. Um, you know, if you were speaking to, a, you know, an architect just uh, starting out or their career or going to school, what would you suggest that they do that's different from the traditional methods or processes? Like, how do you start um, going down the path that you've been going down for some time? What do you have? What do you need to do? What do you need to know? Well, you need to understand the ecosystem concept. The ecosystem, in fact, for some ecologists, sees the, is the ecosystem as the uh, definition of nature. But we have to make our buildings, our structures, to replicate, to emulate, and to augment the attributes of ecosystem to become what are called home, uh, human-made, uh, ecosystems or constructed ecosystems, because then the structure that we 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 create, the buildings that we create, have become nature-based systems, and that the buildings then biointegrate much more effectively with nature in a nature-to-nature -nature basis. So this is what I say to students: starting out, first thing you need to do is to study ecology because once you study ecology you look at the world differently um, when you you know now you look into outer window you see grass you see trees and you know any and, and that's jolly nice but if you are trained in the background in ecology when you look out in the windows you can see for the synthesis taking place you can see how nature creates fresh water how um soils are created and you can see um, how trees contribute to sequestering pollutions and so you look at the world differently and that's the first thing you need to do if you're starting out in life as a student is to study ecology so, uh, uh, in Cambridge you call it environmental biology um, but uh, the second thing you need to do is to study the attributes and properties of ecosystems are designed to replicate and emulate uh, and augment the attributes of ecosystems into your built environment. And that's incredibly difficult. I've been trying to do that for, you know, for a good part of my professional life. And I haven't achieved any great success in it. But that's what I'm trying to do is to design and think about how you can repurpose and remake the uh, built environment to be an artificial or human-made um, ecosystem. That is the greatest challenge in ecological design. And that's what mm -hmm. students, when they start studying architecture, should look at the attributes of ecosystems. 
and think about how they can replicate it um, in the built environment. I call, you know, it, it, the um, people call this biomimicry, mimic uh, the properties of ecosystems. Yes, yes. That's sort of the ultimate, right? I guess is to have a building that's like a tree, you know, that uh, can generate its own energy, manage its own water, uh, produce food, sequester carbon. That that's kind of like the ultimate, um, I would imagine, type of uh, approach or end goal. Yes, I think uh, more than just a tree, the city should be like a forest. Um, all of our built structures should contribute positively to the environment rather than negatively or selfishly take something out of the environment. And so um, that's what design's about. So we should teach, redesign, teach rethink the way we teach design to students, designed to replicate nature. And that's the first thing teachers should be teaching mm -hmm. as soon as they start architecture school. Do you have any examples of these types of buildings or ones that are close to the um, the iconic uh, end goal? What, what, what jumps out at you in terms of your own projects or other projects that embody this these these ideas? Where can people go to learn more from the actual buildings that have been designed and built? Well, I started to um, put vegetation buildings back in 1985. Um, and I started between 85 and, and today, I started to map out the different ways we could put vegetation into buildings and into cities. I mean, if you look at New York, um, all the vegetation is plonked in one location in Central Park, which is a good thing, but it's too small. Uh, uh, a land area, you know, in relation to the density of the of the buildings in New York, although there are small squares like uh, Union Square and Washington Square, and so we 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 should not put all the vegetation in one location but spread it out a bit more. In some ways, this is Georgian London. Georgian London has a series of squares, Bedford Square, Euston Square, Russell Square, um, Tavistock Square, and so forth. But these squares are, are not large enough, and they're not evenly distributed throughout the whole of the city. Mm. And if you look at you know Hyde Park and Regent's Park, and if you live in Shoreditch or Hackney, you're miles away from the green areas to be able to benefit from green areas. One of the properties that is extremely important for um, architects to replicate is the provision of ecosystem services. Around the year 2000 or so, ecologists got together and said, what are the things that nature does for us as human beings? Um, that does without you know without human interference, does naturally and is done for free. We don't have to pay do anything to nature. And they call these ecosystem services. Ecosystem services uh, consist of things like uh, 
photosynthesis, production of oxygen, sequestering of pollutants, mm -hmm. production of pure water, um, enhancement of biological diversity, enrichment of the soils. Mm -hmm. So nature does it for us without us interfering with it, without any human intervention. And so these are, these are um, services, and they call it ecosystem services that nature does for us, which we should try and emulate and replicate. In my early life, in early years, um, in my early life as professional, I conclude that it's absolutely impossible for us to technologically replicate ecosystem services. It's too vast an endeavor. And so what do we do if we need to increase the capability of provision ecosystem services? So my conclusion was that um, if you cannot replicate it, you have to make use of it. And so we should green the cities as much as possible. It doesn't have to mean, doesn't mean that you put trees on every street corner, but you have to create green strips that weave these with the urban areas in close proximity so that these green strips or green fingers or green corridors provide ecosystem services to the urban areas uh, which are next to it. And so, as they say, you can't beat them, you should join them and should, you know, create these green corridors and fingers into our cities. So that's an idea that I've been working on, that you can actually um, produce, use nature to produce ecosystem services cheek by jowl with your uh, urban areas. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an idea. We did this in the master plan um, for an island, for, for a site in um, an island called you know, La Reunion, uh, which is east of Madagascar, where we, we had an uh, ecological corridor that picks up all the species uh, along the waterfront. Then we brought it into a series of fingers, green fingers into the, into the city. So that the green fingers, you know, are next, are woven into the city and, and they produce ecosystem services to be beneficial to the urban, urban areas. So mm -hmm. that is not working mm -hmm. on at the moment. That sounds really, uh, really amazing. I know there's a sort of a movement on to re recover cities around the world from the automobile. I mean, it's at different stages in different cities, but there's definitely a move to try to capture some of the land that's taken up by automobiles and and turn it into you know green fingers or green infrastructure or parkland. And um, people are. Um, a lot of people now are focused on the health related, like human health and well-being component of that. Well, yes. I mean, just like the High Line in New York, you know, what happens if you, you know, making not just into a hard surface, but you, you put, you, you convert it with a green roof, you know, and can you imagine what a wonderful place it will be? It'll be, it'll become what I call a linear park. You know, it's not, you know, most parkland are lots patches of land, but this is a linear park from one spot to another spot. And if they're connected to the green areas in the hinterland, then basically you have uh, enhanced the 
equal to a nexus of the locality. That means, you know, in nature, everything's connected. And so if you're able to connect the green areas from one patch of the of that part of the locality to another patch, then you've enabled species to migrate across the landscape. You increase the, the uh, biodiversity and and you enhance the uh, biological biological content of that locality. And so so the high line in New York should be made all green, not just bits of it, but in its entirety. And where it starts on the ground, it should link to a green area. Mm -hmm. But then um, species can actually you know, work this way across the landscape. Not that all of, well, not all species want to do that, but it enables a much greater level of connectivity. So that's another that's an idea I've been thinking about. And so, if you, with this use, let's say if you if you don't use you know don't use the motorways and with just use motorways rather than demolish them and and throw the you know either reuse the concrete or throw them into the landfill convert them into linear parts that's an idea that's uh mm -hmm. that's what we do with um you know pretty radical uh, idea ken well you know, it's, it's sort of obvious i think mm -hmm. Well, anyway, the, car, the car is still very much king here in uh, certainly North America. Many people use the cars to get around, and there's a constant tension. In, and you're talking about transportation infrastructure between, you know, cars and public transit and what the ramifications or needs of both of those systems are. And I, I'm not sure we've got it figured out as well as you do in Asia or we have in, or they have in, in Europe. You know, we're still it's still very much a tug of war with the, the car dominating here. Well, yes, you know, um, I just reading a study the other day that a significant, a, a large extent of use of the cars is not going to work and coming back to work. It's going shopping, going for food and, and you know, driving around the neighborhood. And so, um, so if we can reduce that, that means... Um, you know, I was looking into a, a system to, developed by this gentleman. He calls it the 15-minute city, where everything is accessible within 15 minutes. So you can walk a bicycle to to, uh, to whatever you want without using the car. Well, that's an idea. But it means that, you know, you know cities have to be... Um, what are called transport-oriented development, so that you live and work and you play within a, a fifty-minute radius. I'm not sure how 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 pleasurable that you know that will be or how it will impact people's lives. But if you can if you if you can reduce the dependency on a car, be great. Yeah, that fifteen-minute. Uh... 15-minute community idea is supposed to generate more holistic developments that have a multitude of services that we need, right, rather than, you know, all skyscrapers or all uh, low-density subdivisions. We're here with Ken Yang, who's an ecologist and architect who's been pioneering methods to build greener buildings and communities for, uh, for four decades now. We'll be right back uh, with a few more questions for Ken.
Combating climate change often requires making hard choices to find the best solution. But what if one of those choices was easy? What if one of those choices didn't have to be a choice? The Solar Green Roof Integration Virtual Symposium on February 15th will showcase the beneficial relationship between solar and green roofs, and how your project can be designed to include both. From improving energy generation, safeguarding rooftop plantings, protecting valuable investments, and more, not only do these two work well together, but it's easy to do. So the question really comes down to, why wouldn't you? In the fight against climate change, we shouldn't have to make a choice between green roofs or solar panels, because choosing both is so much better. Learn more about this innovative synthesis and make design easier. Registration is only $39, so sign up today at greenroofs.org events. I'm delighted to have architect and ecologist Ken Yang with me here today. And we've been talking uh, in broad terms about sustainable communities and, and more sustainable ecologically oriented buildings. Uh, and I just wanted to follow up, uh, Ken, on, on an idea that you have that, you know, buildings should be providing ecosystem services the way nature does. And I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through one or two examples of some of the buildings that you've worked on that are performing those ecosystem services. Well, plants um, sequest pollutants in the air through a process, I think it's called phytoremediation. And so uh, we should try and um, cover or increase the plant coverage of, of the built structures that we create. Um, and then they should be connected. And so an example of this um, is the Solaris building that we did in Singapore in the One North District where we had a vegetated ramp that starts from the basement area and weaves its way up to the mid-level roof garden and then finally to a roof garden at the top. What we've done with the vegetated ramp is to put a walkway next to it that you can service and the vegetation without going through the user areas. I mean, that's this very couple of very famous buildings in the world, especially the one, for example, in Italy, where the architect puts vegetation on the facade of the building, which is very nice, was a great thing to do. But to service the plants, they have to either use um, mountain climbers and jump up on the roof to service it for the roof, or, or the people who service the planting have to go through the net area, the user areas. And that's really annoying because, you know, if you're living in an apartment and, and you know, and, and your plants need to be replaced or this mix these, the soil mix needs to be um, worked on and improved, you find a whole bunch of workers walking through your living room or your bedroom mm -hmm. to get access to plants. That's really annoying. So what we've done with Solaris building is to avoid that. We created a walkway next to the plants and so that you can service the plants from the outside. And and I call this, you know, when you stretch it out, the ramp that starts from the basement going up to the top of the building is 1.3 kilometers long. So I call this a linear park, but it could, you know, real, you know, boring if it's just a linear park. So what we've done is that 
create plazas at the corners of the building, many plazas, so that from the walkway you can actually have um, short stops in between. And these plazas obviously could also be accessible from inside the building. And so um, that's one of the things we can do. And the uh, the plant is about, the planting area is about 12 times the surface area of the ground, but it's still not enough. We should balance the abiotic constituents in buildings with the abiotic. But there was an experiment that we did that was completed back in 19, in 2009. And so we're trying to increase more buildings, more green areas in buildings. But the purpose of architecture must be to make buildings into constructed ecosystems. And to do this, uh, we create habitats within the built system. Mm -hmm. The habitats could be on the roof as what you're doing, which is really admirable. It could be on the facade as green, green walls and green uh, curtains, or you can have to be on terraces, could be underground. And so um, we try and create as many habitats as we can within the built system and try and compensate for the inorganicness of the rest of the building. But the biggest problem, you know, is how to biointegrate the green areas, the green biotic systems with the abiotic systems. Um, and that's where I draw an analogy uh, with what doctors do in a prosthesis. A prosthetic device, a prosthetic item, like an artificial arm or artificial leg or artificial heart, even an artificial eye, um, is how to integrate it with the human body, which is its host organism. So the analogy is this. All our buildings are like prosthetic devices. As in medical, uh, as in medicine, um, all buildings are artificial. It is synthetic; it's human-made, and the host organism equivalent to the human body for a prosthesis is the bio, is the biosphere itself, uh, which is um, the organic host. Mm -hmm. So here lies the crunch, which is how can we integrate our prosthetic device with um, the, the host organism? So the solution is to not have a, a prosthetic device to be artificial, but to make it a hybrid artificial system. It has to be what I call a constructed ecosystem. And then the biointegration becomes part of nature to nature rather than artificial to nature or alien object to nature, but nature to nature. And that in principle, is the idea, but how to make it work is is the challenge. And I'm sure you know well, there'll be hundreds of ways that people can think of doing it. But I wish there were more people trying to do that rather than just the few of us. Mm -hmm. You know uh, that there's a piece of legislation in um, in the UK right now that would require uh, develop either buildings and or sites to replace um, the area that they take up on, upon the land with greenery. I think it's 120%, if I remember. You mentioned that Solaris, the Solaris building had 12 times the 
area of green space as the footprint of the actual building. So in in the UK, they're shooting for I think 120% coverage uh, as a policy, um, and it has to be of a similar quality to the ecological. If it's a green development, what was there previously? Um, you know, you can't just put up sod and say you've done it. It has to have biodiversity and a certain quality of biodiversity built into it. Are you aware of that um, that policy in the UK? And uh, and what what are your thoughts about that as perhaps a driver for the uh, increasing the biotic biotic uh, components in in uh, in buildings? Do you think that's a that's a good approach? Just make a requirement. Well, I, thou shalt do it. I think that's in principle a good idea, but a lot depends on what was the ecosystem before we put the building. It could be uh, forested land. So how can you, you know, the trees that take several decades to grow, how can you replace it? And so green roofs should not be just green roofs. There should be green forests. And most of the land, you know, in the, especially in the Far East, is um, pristine forests. And when you demolish and you clear the land, no matter how many green, how many area, whether it's 20% of the uh, roof is covered with greenery, you can never replace the trees that had taken decades to grow within your building, unless you convert the roof into, uh, into a forest and the roof area is equivalent to the footprint of the building. And so these are some of the things we should, we, you know, this is just in principle what we should be doing. But at the end of the day, we should balance the biotic constituents of buildings with the abiotic. And so um, that means the intensity of the building in terms of its abiotic constituents should balance it with the green air, with greenery, not just the land area, but the entire content of the building itself should be balanced with um, biotic constituents. Mm -hmm. and only that should be integrated with each other and that is the challenge and so a lot of people now are trying to let's say you know they say that um you know concrete and cement are polluting materials they try to make buildings out of out of timber and so that is a step forward but we forget that timber before it became timber as a living thing, it is a tree. You had to cut down the tree to make the timber, and so it's it, you have to look at it in a cyclic way. And for instance, you, you can recycle concrete as uh, rubble and as land and as uh, as as reusable material. Um, but you can but it's almost impossible and extremely difficult to convert concrete back into cement. Mm -hmm. When you recycle timber, you cannot recycle it in the same way. That's always a loss. 
you have to, you know, you have to, you know, bit of it has to be cut off, has to be changed to recycle timber, and it's never in the shape or the form that you want to reuse it. So the intention of, of recycling and reusing is good, but it's not, it's not something we can, you know, address overnight. We have to think about how we're going to do it. So um, the problem is much more complex than what we think it is. Mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to materials reuse and uh, obviously quality, the quality of the green space is is, uh, is more important even potentially than the quantity of it when we're trying to do ecological restoration and compensate right. for the impacts of the of buildings upon the um, upon the earth. The DigiDat yes. Center. What's your uh, what's the what's the um, exciting thing about that particular project? I know that you're there's a number of green walls. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that DigiDat Center? I, I wanted to to um, experiment with. I've never done a building with green walls, so the Digi was the first building with. We did using green walls. I couldn't get the client, we couldn't persuade the client to, to cover their entire building uh, with vegetation. So we brought vegetation from the ground. That is very important. It must be linked to the hinterland and to the ground. And then we wove it up on one side, one side of the building, one facade, down the, the other side to the back and back to the front again. So it's a continuous, um, Link green wall, and the veg system we use is is the greenery uh, in a series of cassettes which are put next to each other, so that in case of in the event that any of the vegetation fails, we just take out the cassette and replace it with another one, and so we don't have to rip up all the walls, all the greenery to replace it. Oh, you know, the other day I was in Paris and uh, saw a building done by a famous architect. Where he had a green wall, and the green was the green was the green was in that terrible state. Then you can, if you want to replace it, you have to rip out the whole green wall and do it all over again. So the cassette system is actually quite a good idea, and behind it would be your your irrigation system, and so um, it's it's a system that you could um, take care of, you know, much easy much easily. Than having a homogenous green wall. So that's the DG building. There was a data center, and we're doing a lot of data centers now because you know it's it's the uh, flavor of the day because um, it's they're like crisis centers for a lot of a lot of uh, organizations like banks, insurance companies, and businesses. But when people are talking about um, driverless cars. And so for driverless cars to, to to work, you've got to have a data center at the start of the street and a data center at the end of the street. So this gives, you know, this enables the driverless cars to uh, to work. And so data centers are, are crucial today. And, and a lot of um, organizations and businesses and cities are building more and more data centers. And that is a building type that we we are gaining expertise in doing, and that and that is the uh, an area that we should um, try and make them green because data centers uses 
enormous amount of energy for the machines. But um, what we try to do is that if we're able to, we're not able to make it net zero energy uh, uh, yet, because um, even if we put photovoltaics on top of the buildings, we will not provide get provide enough photovoltaic area to 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 meet the energy requirements of the, the machines. But we're able in one project to provide enough of roof area. Um, which has to extend beyond the roof to cantilever over the edges of the building uh, in photovoltaics to, to, to meet the energy requirements of the common areas of a data center. But for the machines, we got to have other sources like wind, wind generators and so forth. Um, so that is an issue, problem that we need to address because um, our human society is addicted to an energy and um, and how we can design to be to use renewable sources of energy and to be carbon neutral um, is something that we should spend time doing uh, developing, and we should design. Not you know a lot of people are saying that we should design to be net zero energy. I don't think we should just stop there. We should design buildings to be surplus energy, net surplus energy rather than net zero energy. That means the surplus energy could be stored in batteries so that at times of the day, like in the nighttime and late evening, when we need energy, we don't have to take it from the grid, but you have, you have to, you, know, you have to, you are, Autonomous, you, you can use the uh, energy that you've stored within your building. So um, there are thousands of little things like that that we, you know that has been bothering me. No end. Um, we can address one, but then you create another uh, problem somewhere else. Um, the problems much more. You know, like um the frog in Sesame Street. It sings a song that you know. It's not easy being green. <laughs> no, it's not that easy being green. And there's a level of complexity there that's uh, pretty, uh, sometimes a little bit daunting. Uh, hey, okay. Ken, let me ask you, you know, a lot of people that um, are involved in the environmental movement um, have some early relationship with, with nature. Did you mm -hmm. have, like, when you were growing up, did you have some special relationship to the natural world? What what happened? Well, just... well I mean, I used to go fishing and uh, with my best friend when I was in my early teens. And um, we had a house with a big garden in Penang. But I didn't really... Uh, so how I got to, to become a green design was that I was employed as a research student, research worker at Cambridge University initially to work on a project called the Autonomous House. The Autonomous House is a, an idea that was mooted by an American architect engineer called Buckminster Fuller. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, in one of Buckminster Fuller's book, he talked about the Autonomous House project, which is a house which exists um, without connection to the city's utilities. 
So that means it, it has its own energy source, its own energy treats its own uh, sewage locally and uh, harvests rainwater and grows its own food. It's a wonderful idea. And so uh, Cambridge University at that time had uh, uh, got some funding from the Science Research Council to design a tunnel's house. And this was back in 1971. So, but I, I, was, I was employed to work on the uh, tunnel's house project. But after six months in the project, I said, look, the engineering support isn't there. But the bigger picture is that we're doing this because for ecological reasons for the environment. So I took leave from my supervisor, my boss, to write a doctorate. I left it, the technical research unit to become a, a, a research student uh, to work on, that, on ecological design. So this is how my doctorate started. And um, so that's what happened. Hmm. So Bucky, Bucky uh, got you going on green uh, design. Yep. Bucky yep. He, same Bucky, thing yeah. with Bill Browning. Bill Browning uh, worked on some Buckminster Fuller projects in 1989 or something. Building yes. something. Yeah, I don't know. So it's funny that both of you share that um, that past, that, you know. Heritage. Yeah. Yeah, yes, that's how that's how I got to uh, to work on ecological design because I realized that uh, the Thomas House project was still was too much in its infancy. We did not have engineering support from industry. It wasn't until nineties that we got you know engineers suddenly leapt up and said uh, we have to do something with environment. The engineers started to look into sustainable engineering and uh, sustainable design. But between 71 to uh, 90, we were just, you know, doing everything by ourselves and we had to do the energy calculations ourselves. We had to look into the systems, you know, <clears throat> in a very uh, amateurish way. It wasn't until the 90s that we got, um, we got better engineering support. And so that's how I got into green design. It wasn't, you know, any great love of nature or something like that but you know when i got to ecology then i realized that um you know this is something that we must all take care of our planet and and this ecology because the ecology is the um originated originating context upon which all our human acts and activities take place absolutely Hey, we're uh, having an excellent chat with uh, architect and ecologist Ken Yang about his work to shift the paradigm of how we design and build and operate buildings so that they're more in line with how natural systems function. And we'll be right back in a minute. Cities Alive is celebrating its 20th anniversary from November 6th to 9th, 2024, in the city that saw the first green roof policy in North America, Toronto, Ontario. The multidisciplinary conference will spotlight pioneering design, groundbreaking policy, and innovative products for the green infrastructure industry. Want to get involved and spotlight your groundbreaking project or share your great idea with hundreds of colleagues and professionals? Well, you're in luck. The call for proposals is now open. Through April 30th, we're calling all professionals and researchers to submit your presentation, paper, or poster for a slot on the 20th anniversary Cities Alive agenda. Cities Alive 2024 is gearing up to be an exciting two and a half days of learning, networking, and taking in the sights in Canada's largest city. 
We can't wait to see you there and learn about your fantastic ideas. Visit citiesalive.org and submit your presentation topic today. We're here with Ken Yang, who's a pioneering architect and ecologist who's been trying to marry architectural design with how natural systems function and get as many of those different ecosystem services out of buildings that we find in nature. And he's been working on this for over 40 years. And it's great to have you here, Ken. I want to go down the rabbit hole a little bit with you on the biodiversity side. You know, we have a biodiversity crisis uh, taking place. We're losing species uh, every day. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your work, because I, I read uh, about some of your projects and the detailed manner in which you integrate biodiversity and habitat for various species in different parts of your building. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what the processes they use to make sure that we're getting some biodiversity from these uh, plantings? Well, the objective of ecological design is to create structures which are constructed ecosystems or hybrid human-made ecosystems so that the built structure can biointegrate on a nature-to-nature basis with the natural environment. But in having located, as it determined, the areas where you can have habitats within your building, you have to choose the right uh, species you want to bring back to that location. Because and to do that, you have to study the ecology of the locality um, and ascertain what were the existing species that you want to bring back and desirable species that you want to bring back. Because if you don't do that, you could bring, you could put vegetation and biotic constituents in the building, um, which are invasive species. And once you bring invasive species, then you could use instantly destroy the ecology of that locality. And so you got to have a professional ecologist help you identify the appropriate species for the location. So the habit with when we design, we look at we 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 create habitats in the building. Uh, these could be on the roof, at mid levels. Uh, within the terraces that you stick up on the building or on the walls and on the ground, and even you know in the in the basements where we develop this device called the eco cell where you bring vegetation to the bottom of the building, and that these areas, um, the species, these habitats, we have to identify the the faunal species we want to bring back. And then having identified the appropriate faunal species we bring back, which are not hazardous to human beings, we have to identify the floral species that will attract the faunal species. And we look at integration, uh, the interaction of the faunal species we want to bring back with the floral species, with the habitats. And so making a, a, a building uh, as a constructed ecosystem is not as easy as it sounds. It's not putting you know, vegetation willy-nilly on the facade or on the roof, but you have to be selective on what species you want to bring back. Then with the high-rise becomes a bit more difficult. You know, so I think the examples that, that we've seen, um, the examples really put planting in buildings 
as decorative devices. It's nothing else. It just looks good, and uh, and you know it looks as if you are greening the 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 facade, the building, but you're just you know covering it with plants, and so um, getting the right sort of species is important. And so with the high rise building, what we've done is this. One, what we've done is that for the lower parts, we choose species that will attract dragonflies and butterflies. And then for the middle or third of the building, we choose species that will attract songbirds. And for the upper parts of the building, we choose species that will attract um, migratory birds. And so, you know, um, that is our strategy for the high rise. It's not just building a green wall from, you know, from the foot to the head of the building which some architects are doing. Um, and you really have to be much more uh, careful and selective in what vegetation you bring to attract what type of faunal species you want to bring back. So um, so that's the that's the approach to greening um, uh, buildings uh, with increasing the uh, vegetation or the uh, greenery onto the facade or into the terraces or into the roofs of the building. So it's like an ecological restoration approach as opposed to an aesthetically driven approach. You know, you're, you're really trying to create a, a habitat um, as opposed to, you know, seasonality of, of uh, floral blooms or ease of maintenance you're, you're giving primacy to are we creating a habitat for these creatures and how well has that been going for you okay uh, well ecological uh, restoration but ecological regeneration because the land used to be uh, uh ecology uh, ecosystem before now the most common question i get asked is how do you maintain the vegetation and does it cost an awful lot of money? Uh, and my, when I complete a building, I would assess how it would, what we need to do to maintain the building. Most buildings today, you know, they will have an in-house um, engineer to oversee the um, utilities of the building, the electrical, telephone, uh, sewage, the water. And so if if a, if a building owner can afford to have uh, a mechanical engineer who's full-time employee in charge of building, then when you have greenery in the building, you should have a full-time gardener or to take care of the vegetation. Mm -hmm. So when I complete the building, I, I would assess it and I'd tell the client, um, the owner, whether this is a one gardener building or two gardener building or three gardener building, and that's and and garden salaries are not exorbitant. It's you know it's, it's a for, much more affordable than a mechanical engineer, and that's what you need to you know to have. It's like having a garden. If you want to have a garden at home, yeah, you must be prepared to to tender it to look after it. Mm -hmm. If you want a car, you must be prepared to wash it and clean it and keep it in good order. And so if you want to have greenery in your buildings, you must be prepared to to take care of it and, and to and to tender it. Um, so that's that's what we need to do. 
create habitats, select the right, the right faunal species you want to bring back, select the appropriate floral species that will attract the faunal species to enhance the biodiversity, ensure ecological connectivity so that the whole green area becomes um, a single, a, a larger pool or have a larger pool of natural resources within that will encourage species to be much more stable, much more diverse. And so these are some of the things you need to do when you green a building. Is there a building that stands out as being sort of one of the best in its class for this that stands out for you? Um, well, my current work, I am creating what I call a green infrastructure within the building itself that climbs up to the third floor by a series of ramps, extend across the entire length and breadth of the building, and goes back into the ground again as, at selected areas by vegetated ramps. So that is a project we're working on. Um, the other, another experiment, as I mentioned earlier on, is the Solaris building where we had vegetated ramps that weaves the spray on the facade of the building. With every facade, I climb one floor. And so it, it goes continuously up to the mid-level garden and to the roof. And that is uh, you know, quite a nice project, actually, for me. And then when it hits the ground, it goes into, a, again, a spiraling ramp down to the basement. And so the, the basement then gets vegetation as well. Um, but most times, it's the biggest issue is trying to persuade owners to, to do that. You see, designing a green building or, or creating a green building is almost it's extremely difficult to make it commercially viable. And, you know, when we did Solaris building, we, we, for the green features, we had to persuade the owner to spend about 6.3% of of the construction costs in addition to the construction costs for a building of that equivalent cost uh, for this for the industry cost for in the, for the cost of the equi of or equivalent for that building mm -hmm. and so to justify the additional capital cost of the sixty three percent they have to um, redesign the building to have energy and water savings. That, that over a period of time uh, pays for the uh, additional capital cost in the beginning. And then uh, once the uh, capital cost is amortized over a period of five to eight years, it continues to have um, energy water savings, which then reduces the rates that the, um, the tenants have to pay. But the most important thing, and the most challenging thing that we talk to building owners who are basically financially driven, that the reason why the reason why you should do a green building is because it's the right thing to do. It's just the ethical thing to do. We do it because it's good for um, good for the environment, good for the future, good for our grandchildren. Mm. So uh, that is the biggest problem. Trying to persuade um, owners that they have to increase the budget for a building by. I would ask between 10 to 20 percent 
to make the building not just comply to the accreditation system of the locality, whether it's Green Mark in Singapore or LEED in the US or, or the um, BRIEM in UK or CASPI in Japan. Um, they all do, all different countries have different rating systems. But we have to do much more than that address the rating system. And so, for instance, the, uh, the green requ reading requirement in Singapore is a factor of six, whereas, you know, we treated the greening criteria as something to be surpassed. And so for the Solaris building, the greening ratio uh, is 12, but that's still not enough. We have to, you know, to try and make it, you know, 50 if we can. But that that is going to cost a bit more dosh, you give it more money to, to, to make it green. Um, but that's the challenge of being an architect in today's um, commercial environment. Mm -hmm. have, now, you seen being, any, have you seen any economic justifications related to things like, um, you know, the marketing and promotion of the building or the human health or and well-being or added value um, for people that are renting or purchasing units because they have the the greenery and it's it and they and they people want greenery I, have you seen any uh, developers or research to demonstrate that and is that does that help make the case the human well, that, component well that's a multiple question um let me just try and answer maybe one or two aspects of it um years back i think about 50 years ago some research was done by a gentleman called Robert Ulrich at the uh, hospital in Texas, mm -hmm. where he did experiment. He found that patients uh, recovering from operations when they face a brick wall compared to patients that face greenery, those who face greenery um, heal much faster. Uh, he, you know, it's called is 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 called E.O. Wilson, the famous um, Nobel Prize biologist, calls it biophilia. Mm -hmm. and so, um, enhancing the aesthetic well-being of building of people is extremely important. That's the significance of putting greenery on the outside and, and on the inside. The other research that we use is is, is research that was done by a gentleman called Tom Wolverton. Um, uh, for NASA, he found that certain plants, indoor plants, sequest pollutants, or what he calls, you know, what the industry calls VOC, which is volatile organic compounds, which are produced by machines, by by uh, by people, and, and 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 by activities within buildings. And certain plants absorb these um, sequests, absorb these pollutants. And these were done by Wolverton when he was working for NASA, and he had a wonderful book on it. And and the, you know the, the, a lot of research has been done. And so the benefits of putting plants in buildings. But back to what you said earlier on, um, I do green buildings uh, because uh, it's part of my life's agenda. But design isn't just making buildings green. To me, there are five factors that 
we have to consider. And uh, the last one to me is the most important. The first factor is that the building must work, must function well. And so besides making a building green, it must function well. If it doesn't work, it doesn't function well, then it's, you know, it's a useless piece of hardware. The second factor is that it must meet criteria of cost and time and quality. And that's what being an architect is all about. We have to design buildings which are of high quality, uh, within budget. And if you bust the budget, you know, someone's going to get awfully annoyed with you. And so that's the second factor, must make criteria. Criteria not just of the client, but the criteria of the local approving authorities, you know, the government regulations. And thirdly, um, because we're artists, uh, um, a building has to be immensely beautiful. Of course, that's subjective, but that's what we should try and do. The other day, I saw a building in New York, which is, um, I know, and the the architect guide who showed me around says, this is a lead platinum building. And I said, this, yes, it's lead platinum green, but it's god awful ugly. So, you know, we should try and make green buildings beautiful. At the same time, we should make them green. Mm-hmm. But the last factor, the fifth factor, is the most important one is that our design must make people happy, must give pleasure to their lives, enhance their well-being, and should be health-enhancing. That is the most important aspect of architecture. I completed a building the other day for an Australian family, and uh, and a critic, an English critic, so interviewed them and said, what do you think of this building that the Ken did for you? And they said, we're very happy here. We believe we're living in paradise. And mm-hmm. when, when this was related to me, that really made my, you know, made my day, as you know, as Clint Eastwood would, have, would say, um, it uh, it it justifies my whole raison d'être, the reason of being an architect, which is really to make people happy. Mm-hmm. That was criteria. So when I design my office, I don't stop by saying, "How can we make it green?" Because after a while. Anybody could make a building green. It is almost like, you know, like a rite of passage of designing. The first thing we ask is, let's look at this project. Let's look at its requirements. What can we do here to enhance the well-being, to create spaces and, and places that, um, that are health-enhancing and that would make people immensely happy? And so that is the, the greatest challenge of architecture. What I'm doing now is to find what can we do to make people happy. One of the things that we're doing is to look at neuroscience. You see, when you talk to a neuroscientist and you ask him what is happiness, happiness for him is a chemical reaction that takes place in your brain. The sudden activity engenders the production of that um, of the chemical. And so for instance, when you when you you know certain chemicals are generated that makes people happy, there's for instance the feeling of success. That's why people play, you know, you know, spend money bowling because every time you hit all the skittles, you know, they all yell and says, wow, you know, that's a, that's a hit. But and they do it again and again and again because that's just to get the feeling of, of success because it makes them feel happy. And so what we try to do is they look at the chemical that's produced by the brain 
what sort of activity engenders the creation of that capital? What are the spatial implications and how to interpret that into plan within a built form? And so in this way, designing for human happiness is, 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 is one of the prime objective of, of what we do as an architect. And, um, and so at the same time, we should make it green. But making green to me is just, um, anybody can do it. Once you know the technique, you know the principles, um, you, you know, the interpreting of that is in uh, it varies from one person to another person. And so uh, it's not exclusive to us. And we give it freely to anybody. We don't we don't sort of, you know, hold it close to our chest and say, you know, this is the way we do green buildings and nobody can do it except us. We give it away because it's good for the environment, it's good for the people, good for the future. Bill Browning has a new book out on the uh, economics of um, of biophilia, and uh, he uh, one of the things he, that they talk about is how the happiness and the greenery actually, you know, are self reinforcing. If people are happy with a, a place, they're more likely to take care of it, to maintain it. Um, you know, if they love if they love their green roof on their in their condo, they'll go up and they'll they'll help maintain it and they care for it. But and it also gives them happiness. So there's some. It appears there's some some of these things you're talking about are self reinforcing. Absolutely, I agree with you. You know, in totality, um, and so um, Barfield was originated, I think, by a gentleman called E. O. Wilson, who was a Nobel Prize biologist. And he wrote a book on biophilia, which is based on what you said, you know, that by green, by, by, by putting greenery, it is a, a natural thing in human beings that by looking greenery, you feel, feel good. You, you feel, uh, you know, your, your, your mental health increase. And so that's one of the benefits of putting greenery in buildings. And studies have also been shown that by putting vegetation and greenery and landscaping within buildings, it increases the productivity of people who work within buildings. Yes, yes. And that's the other thing that um, that is beneficial. But and that can be a big deal economically, you know, if you're running a commercial office or something, that, that can be a very big, even 1% or 2% increase in productivity from interior design and greenery is massive, right? That's a, a massive benefit. Absolutely. But looking into the big picture, nature doesn't care what we do to the environment. Nature, we can destroy the environment and, and delete all human life. Um, and nature doesn't care because nature will recover over time. Yes. It will recover over time. It will it may take a, you know, a bit longer, but you'll recover. Whereas you know, we human beings, you know, um, can destroy nature and, and contaminate the uh, the atmosphere and create toxic environments for ourselves. And when we're all gone, nature will just say, well, let's go on and let's get on with recovery and nature will recover. So nature right. doesn't recover. So what we're doing is not to save nature, but actually to save ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, to create a healthy environment for our grandchildren and the great-grandchildren who comes after that. Um, so to stop the atmosphere becoming toxic, to stop the 
the land area from being devastated and to stop our waterways being contaminated. These are admirable things to do, as things is the right thing to do. But if we can conserve and regenerate nature, um, that's that's what we should doing. We should be doing rather than just continue to destroy it. Thank you so much for all your work, uh, Ken, and your uh, innovative thinking and practice. Uh, where do people go to find out more about some of the books that you've read or some of the papers or projects? Where would you direct them? Well, I have been working, uh, writing books, um, you know, since I started that practice. I've written about 12 books, maybe 13 now, and you can find them in www.amazon.com. All my books are there. You're on Amazon, okay. And you can see my interviews in YouTube uh, or in my LinkedIn. And uh, to conclude, people ask me, what do you do every day? I said, the four hours, uh, you know, first hour is reading, and I'm a compulsive reader. You put something in front of me, and I'll just read it. So that's the first thing I do. And second is I write this book, so it's writing. And third is I try to make some money. I go to arithmetic. <laughs> what is the fourth hour, uh, Stephen? Rest. No. Recreation. Arch architecture. <laughs> That's right. fantastic. Well, there's a you've certainly made your your mark on architecture, and will continue to do so. Hopefully, for many years before you start to uh, fertilize the daisies. How about that? <laughs> yes, afraid so. Yes. Okay. okay. Nice chatting with you, Stephen. Um, good to see you again. You too. Namaste, my friend. Namaste. Stay strong. Thank you so much. So thanks everyone for joining us. This wraps up our edition of Sustainable Futures. There uh, are quite a few amazing interviews in this series. If you want to find out more, you can go to livingarchitecturemonitor.com, click on the podcast uh, icon at the top and learn a lot from uh, fantastic experts that are doing great work to uh, improve our life here on planet Earth. Thank you very much. Take care.